Hi there. Welcome to another Dishcast. I'm up here still in Provincetown. I'm having what you might call adventures with contractors. I'm actually having them repaint my little cottage in Provincetown, which tends to be get battered a lot by the rain. And they kind of said they were doing it. They came last Monday and they they did some 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 finessing, some power washing. And then I was like, well, I'm sure they're going to let me know when they show up again to do the rest of the painting. And they showed up at eight o'clock this morning with no warning whatsoever. And now they're sanding down the house. So I'm in somewhere, I'm in my old friend's place here in Provincetown. So we're, we're in a guest studio, as it were. And this week, as we prepare for Halloween, we have David Brooks. <laughs> I didn't, that came out the wrong way. But anyway, <laughs> we have David, my old friend, longtime columnist for the New York Times, essayist for The Atlantic, producer of epic books, commentator on PBS NewsHour, on NPR's All Things Considered, and NBC's Meet the Press, and he teaches at Yale, of all things. His new book is How to Know a Person, The Art of... Uh, I'll start that. How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And I have to say there were parts of that book where I did feel a little uncomfortably seen. Give you a quick roundup of who's coming up. We have Pamela Paul soon. David Leonhardt's coming on with his new book about the American dream. John Judas and Roy Teixeira are here for their new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? And Matthew Crawford, the author of Shop Class's Soulcraft, talks about life, death, and the mind. And in similar vein, we have David this week. This is more a more like an Atlantic piece than his usual New York Times columns. And it's, it's really mainly about psychology and social psychology. And it seems to come from a sense that something is off in our society. Something has gone awry. David, so nice to see you. Thank you for doing this. Oh. You're welcome to be on the Dishcast. Thank you so much. I am very pleased. I've been looking forward to this. I'm a big Dishcast fan. I've been a Dish fan since you began writing it in the 14th century. And you have my sympathies about the, the, the contractors. I once had an ADD plumber. I bought this terrible house in D.C. where all the floors were slow, sloping in the wrong direction, so everything uh-huh. started breaking. So I got a plumber, and he would work on well, – there were three bathrooms in the place. He'd work on them all simultaneously and forget that he had let the, left the water running in one or the other. And he'd just sprint around the house trying to keep up with himself. So, was Well, a- I, I have – PTSD from this because my father used to uh, occasionally decide that he was going to renovate the house and being my dad and having almost no money he tended to do it himself or with friends of his that he found who said they were contractors but one of them was actually turned out to be just a grave digger and and once he I mean he would do these things he would one day he had a whole house and he knocked out the entire front of the house or like a doll's house and then built a Six foot forward, he built another wall, but he didn't build the second wall before he had knocked down the first one. So we woke up one morning with literally with three of us in the bedroom and there was a there was a sheet of plastic and a complete drop down to rubble right open to the elements. And one of his friends came by and said to him that day, because I'll never forget this is the moment when I lost faith in my father, which no doubt is something that you need to know about me. (laughs) His friend came over and he said, well, you know, Mike, uh, it's all very well, 
what you've done there, but, you know, you've removed the bearing wall from the entire second story. <laughs> we better go get a jack or something to hold it up. So Bill Corpse, which was his name, he was a grave digger, ran out to get some incredibly expensive emergency jack for the second floor <laughs> of the entire house. Anyway, um, so I tend to get real contractors in. And they take their sweet time. Anyway, you, ju- just, you just skimmed right over the fact that the gravedigger was named Bill Corpse. He was. I swear <laughs> to God, he was. He was an absolutely unbelievable. He was like something out of Shakespeare. He really was. His name was Bill Corpse. He 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 dug graves for the town. That was his role in life. He was a tall, gray bearded man, very intimidating, and scared me to be honest. Scared all of us. Yeah. This, this this confirms one of my favorite bits of social science research, which actually has replicated, which is that people named Dennis are disproportionately likely to become dentists. And people named Lawrence are disproportionately likely to become lawyers. So people go where their name tells them to go. Is that true? Slightly. It's not a huge effect, but it's slightly an effect. It's a small effect. Well, one of the things I feel good about the Dishcast is that reading your book, what I do do every week, and I'm going to do this week, because I try and put the context of the arguments people are making or the books they've written or the careers they're having in the context of their entire life. So you better understand where they're coming from. And... And I try, and it turns out I've done this not too badly, given David's book. I, I try to ask them just to tell their story and not to put anything in their minds or in their heads and just say, you tell me what you want to tell me about how you grew up, who your parents were. So, David, why don't you do that so we can better know you? First of all, I, I salute you that. There, there's a psychologist, Jerome Bruner, who I quote in the book, who says there are two kinds of thinking, paradigmatic thinking and narrative thinking. And paradigmatic thinking is making an argument, a PowerPoint presentation, frankly, an opinion column, a legal brief. And that's very important for making a case for something. But if you want to know another person, you have to do narrative. You have to get them storytelling. And so even as a journalist, I've stopped asking people, what do you think about this? I now ask them, why did you come to believe this? And that gets them telling me a story about their past or somebody who shaped their values. And so my past is easy to caricature, but it's what I have. I grew up in Greenwich Village in Lower Manhattan to a family. My dad was a professor at NYU for my childhood. My mom was getting her PhD at Columbia. And so they were in Victorian literature and Victorian history. And so the phrase around our our family was think Yiddish, act British. Uh, And so we were super stiff upper lip, a little emotionally repressed, but super intellectual. And my parents were not really hippies, even though it was the 60s and 70s. They were more like beatniks. They were of an earlier era. They were from the partisan review crowd, I guess I would say. And so my dad always dressed in a suit with little black narrow ties, skinny ties in those days. And we grew up thinking like the Lionel Trilling, Diana Trilling, Sidney Herc, Irving Howe, Irving Crystal. Like these were the heroes of my childhood. And even people like Philip Roth. Remember when my first wife converted to Judaism, the rabbi asked me, what, what does being Jewish mean to you? And I said, yeah, like it means to me whatever it means to everybody. Saul Bellow and Philip Roth, that's what Judaism is, right? <laughs> and so I grew up in sort of that hothouse intellectual atmosphere that seemed normal to me, but was extremely peculiar. It was also interesting to grow up in Greenwich Village in the 60s and 70s, because, for example, I never made a transition on gay marriage issues because, like, a third of my neighborhood was gay. So it was like not a, the, the idea that there was homophobic violence in America was not something I would have experienced really in my childhood. And then when I get outside Greenwich Village and suddenly it's everywhere, but, but it was a, a, 
an interesting childhood because because of that, that growing up in Greenwich Village. Do you think that's sometimes a, a burden sometimes to have had your head filled with all sorts of rather esoteric ideas very young so that you become sort of precocious before your time? Or did you just take this all in your stride and, and absorb it and, and, and seek more, which is sort of your curious nature. Yeah, I think the upside was that I had this background in ideas, and I joke in the book that at my our Thanksgiving table, we talked about the history of lactose intolerance and the history of <laughs> Victorian funerary monuments. So, like, that was our culture. I was I was reading that, and I was like, <laughs> I cannot imagine a childhood like that. I mean, yeah. there, there, was, there, there, were, there were basically, we had, like, a, a one one bookshelf of pop fiction, basically. That was yeah, it. And yeah. an encyclopedia. And so I'm just always fascinated by people who grew up already marinated in very, pretty high level conversations. And do you think that that was a good training for you? I mean, do you think it set your life in a, in a certain way or, or yeah. not? Yeah. I mean, the, the, yes. I mean, it, it was a tremendous blessing. You know, any of us who come from educated families, we, we've received like God's gift uh, anybody who comes from a two-parent household, uh, you know, there's just so many blessings that you layer down that things I never earned. So on one hand, it was a real blessing uh, to be in this world. On the other hand, you know, I did live up in my head. And so I read a book when I was seven and called Paddings in the Bear, which we all know, I hope. And I decided that moment I want to become a writer. And I've probably been writing every morning except maybe 200 in the course of my life. I'm, I'm a seven-day-a-week writer. And so that it was just super blessed to be, to know what I want to do with my life. I didn't have to waste my time. I got my 10,000 hours of practice in early. On the other hand, I would not say I was the most emotionally intimate and emotionally open person on the face of the earth. Quite the contrary. I, I write in the book that my nursery school teacher told my parents, you know, David doesn't really play with the other students. He just observes them. And so like, that's good preparation to be a journalist, but maybe not to be intimately enjoyed in other people's lives. And so yeah. I've had to spend a lot of my adulthood trying to be a deeper person spiritually and emotionally. And so if you want the plot line of my life, it is a constant process and journey of trying to get one step down with each year, with each book, trying to be more emotionally available, trying to be more spiritually aware. And so that's, that's the journey I've been on. Emotionally available, because and one of the things that you you emphasize in the book is really that emotion is a kind of thought in a way. It, 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 it the idea that we can dramatically separate our feelings from our thinking might once have been a, a workable theory. It is not actually empirically defensible at this point, right? No, there's there's a great neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio who wrote a book years ago called Descartes' Error, and he studied people who, because of lesions, could not process emotion. And what emotion does, it assigns value to things. And if you can't assign value to things, you can't, your, your decision-making landscape is hopelessly flat. So one of his patients, he would say, Antonio would say to him, do you want to come back next Tuesday or Wednesday? And the guy would say, well, the advantages of Tuesday are this, and the advantages of Wednesday are this. And he would speak for 30 minutes. He couldn't reach a decision and so, because he couldn't, he couldn't assign emotion to it. And so that's the... That's, Neuro, neuro, neuroscience fact, the core philosophy, I think this is something we roughly share, is a kind of, of Jungian conservatism and Burkean conservatism that, you know, the wars of revolution happened in the 17th century. Two groups of people decide we have to get over this. And one is the French Enlightenment, and they put a lot of faith, obviously, in the power of reason to overcome a human weakness. And then there's David Hume and Burke and the Scots and the Irish and the British to some degree 
who said, no, but reason is weak. And as Hume famously said, reason is and ought to be the slave to the passions. And the passions, when well-educated, when well-educated by society, by family, by ritual, by education, the passions are to be trusted. And they're very subtle and they're very sophisticated. And it's, it's no accident that Edmund Burke, who's my, one of my heroes, and I think one of yours, he wrote his first book on aesthetics. Because an emotion is kind of like an aesthetic sense. It's an immediate burst of admiration or it's a, a burst of contempt. And those bursts, if you've been trained well by your culture, are just incredibly sophisticated. And so I, I have really come to trust the emotions almost more than reason. I was thinking when you said that of the coronation of King Charles III, which by any rational measure was absurd. I mean, it is an absurd thing. He doesn't have any power. He's being anointed with special oils. He's, it, it, all the rest of it, the huge drama of it. And a 21st century country, and yet everyone was on the streets. Everyone felt a little moved. Everyone felt this ceremony somehow meant something to them, even though it, you couldn't really parse that into words. I mean, you could come up with a constitutional defense of the Constitution monarchy, but that wasn't what people were thinking or feeling. They were feeling, this is England. This is, this is what we do. This is who we are. And, and it was a way of affirming who you are and, and being seen as a country and, being, and seeing yourself as a country in the context of your history and your future. Yeah, it's the long, it's both the institution is beloved. Obviously, the crown fascinates the world. But I get, but also, you know, the, the sense of long continuity over time is just so powerful for a country. We, all of us human beings are the, the, we are what comes at the end of a long process of a series of decisions that our ancestors made. And in the book, I have all these questions you should ask, in my view, to light up a dinner party to make it more fun. But in some people's view, including sometimes my wife's preposterously pretentious questions. So I was at a dinner party and I asked the, co the collection of six or eight people, how do your ancestors show up in your life? And it turned out to be a fantastic conversation because like my heritage is Jewish. So I talked about really thousands of years of Jewish history, the emphasis on the book, the emphasis on argument, the idea that Jews were this random group of people in a far off marginal part of the world. And they decided God's view of history revolved around them, <laughs> that they were the chosen people. That's an audacious claim and comes with an audacious responsibility to live up to the commitment, to the covenant. And so I felt formed by that. There was a Dutch family that talked about Dutch culture. There was a black family that talked about, obviously, African-American heritage. Uh, and to me, when you look at England, one of the things I envy about England is this sense of long duration, the sense that we English are a peculiar people, but we've been peculiar in our own specific way for a long time. And one of my favorite essays is George Orwell's essay, Albion Seed. I mean, I'm sorry. Well, I, I have the lion a, and the unicorn. The lion and the unicorn. My or, England, my England. Yes. Yeah. It's, it, it, there are different versions of it, actually. My England, your, my England, my England is like a, a rather shorter version. Sure. But you're, that, that essay blew me away as a teenager because... It was the first description of the world around me that really was done with extraordinary precision and accuracy, but more importantly, with a huge amount of love and passion for the, for what would otherwise be not world historical, actually incredibly minor things, English cooking. You actually love a suet pudding, which yeah. is, or a particularly kind of cup of tea. These things are important and 
there it was it's a it's a if you've never read that essay as a as a piece of conjuring up of what a nation is it's quite for a socialist it's kind of tory isn't it in, in it, so it is ways. it's his conservative side coming out and he, he says you know it's the warm beer basically he says the average of behavior is different here and he he loves his country but not in a way that's romanticizing it or puffing it up i was at i, I had a french lady come to our house when i was a kid and they were my parents invited them over for dinner and I asked her, what you, and she had just come to New York, and I asked her, what do you think of New York? And she said, I was surprised how ugly it is. And I thought, wow, it is ugly, but it's my hometown and it's my kind of ugly. Like, I love, I love New York ugly in the way I don't love any other ugly. <laughs> and so these things are deep into our roots. And if, you, if anybody knows New York geography, if you start at 14th Street and 2nd Avenue and you walk about a three-quarters of a mile south, you pass where my great-grandfather had a butcher shop, where my grandfather had a law firm, where both my parents grew up, where I grew up, and where my son for a time went to college. So that's five generations in one spot of earth, let alone the number of generations that might exist in England or, or other parts of the world. And though that neighborhood is just so coated with emotion for me of childhood memories, of memories of my own kids, memory of my parents going out to lunch with my grandfather. And it's those de deep connections to a spot on this earth. If you have it, if you can ask people about, I, I, I shamelessly ask people about their childhood. Where'd you grow up? What was the norm of behavior? And then there are some questions like, in your family, the one thing you must always do is blank. Fill that in for me. In your family, the one thing you must never do is blank. And then so you can learn a lot about how people fill in those questions. We would you answer those questions for yourself for us? Yeah, I guess the, the one thing we must always do in our family is have developed views on Benjamin Disraeli. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm exaggerating a little, but, <laughs> but, but that, that's a little bit that my two turtles when I was seven were named Disraeli and Gladstone. Oh, uh, Jesus Lord. <laughs> I know. So I told you a very disturbed childhood. Oh, my God. And the, yes. and, and, and the one thing you must never do is hug another person. We, didn't, we were not huggers. We didn't. And we, we were not. I love you. We were not. That was not us. And so the, the answers are symptomatic. Yes. Yeah. The one thing you didn't do in my family was go out to a restaurant. Mm. <laughs> that was something that was unbelievably extravagant and absurd. What was the thing you had to do? I'm just trying to think. I mean... You had to stand up for yourself. It was kind of a, it was a crazy, it was a somewhat chaotic childhood mm -hmm. household. Parents constantly at war, Irish Catholic family, very loud and bruising. And yeah, you, I grew up around people arguing with each other. Yeah. It, it turns out that I, I sort of got a taste for arguing. Yeah. <laughs> kind I, of enjoyed I it. I thought our business was disproportionately Jewish and Catholic for that exact reason. <laughs> like this is like the Supreme Court. They, we, we argue for a living, so we might as well get paid for it uh, like you endowed yeah, um, yeah you have a rather lovely comparison and, and and we'll just ask the listener to imagine this you you you're coming across a new person in your life for whatever reason and you can choose to be one of two things you put it one is an illuminator and one is a diminisher so run through with me if you i were to meet a, a new person how i would be a better better able to listen to them, to see them, to be the illuminator rather than diminisher. Yeah. So an illuminator, a diminisher makes people feel unseen and invisible. They stereotype, they ignore, they're just not curious about you. And I found in life that only about 30% of the people I meet are question askers. 
The rest are perfectly nice people. They're just on display. They're on broadcast mode. And so they just don't ask you questions. You can go to lunch or dinner and no questions. That's diminishing behavior. Illuminating people are curious about you. They ask you questions. They really make you feel lit up. And in the book, I walk people through the process. And the main thing, the main subject of the book, I guess, is, is how to be a sensational conversationalist. But the part that I care about a lot is that first encounter. You first meet somebody. And when you first meet somebody, you are, and they are asking themselves the same unconscious questions. Am I a person to you? Am I a priority to you? Are, are you going to show me some respect and openness? In any conversation, there are two levels. There's what we're nominally talking about. And then there's the under conversation, which is the flow of emotions flowing between us, making each other feel more safe or more threatened. And the answer to those questions, am I a person to you, will be communicated by your eyes, by your gaze, before it is communicated by anything you say. And so I was, I was at a, a diner in Waco, Texas. I have a project called Weave, the Social Fabric Project, and I meet community leaders. And so I met a woman, a 93-year-old woman named LaRue Dorsey. And when I, she presents herself to me over, dinner, over breakfast at this diner as this tough disciplinarian, drill sergeant type. And she said, I loved my students enough to discipline them. And I was intimidated by her. Uh, and so into the diner walks a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Jimmy Durrell, who's a pastor. He pastors homeless. He has a church under a highway overpass called Church Under the Bridge. And he walks up to us and he grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. And he says, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best. You're the best. I love you. I love you. And that stern disciplinarian that I had been talking to turns into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. And so Jimmy just gazes at her with such love and affection. But deeper, on a deeper level, he's a pastor. And so when he looks at anybody, he's looking at somebody made in the image of God. He's looking at somebody, he's looking into the face of God. He's looking at somebody with a soul of infinite value and dignity, someone so important, Jesus was willing to die for that person. And so you can be a Christian, Jewish, atheist, agnostic, Muslim, whatever. But looking at each person you meet with that level of reverence and respect is an absolute precondition for seeing them well. And to me, the essence of humanism, which is what this book is meant to convey, how to be a humanist in the world, is the sacredness of each person and the infinite dignity of each person, how that has to be at the center of your gaze from the very beginning before you even start talking to each other. And an understanding that you don't know who this person is. You don't know where she's come from. You don't know what family life she's had. You don't know, or you may not know those things. You, you don't know whether she's had a really awful day that day, <laughs> whether yeah. something has just horrible happened to her that would, that would skew her reactions to the entire world. And yet we, we're blind. We sure. don't, I, I have so many people, I don't even think for a millisecond, how is this person doing today? Yeah. Did this person that cut me off in traffic, maybe she had, he, he had a fight with his wife this morning or, or whatever, you know, you just don't go there. But to take that second and to suddenly see the other person as in the image of God, as you were right. But see, that gets to a point that I, I feel that's underneath this book, which is that, that you say you can be a, a Jew, or Hindu, or Muslim, atheist, whatever, you can still see the beauty in another person. But it really helps to believe deep down 
that they really are made in the image of something completely sacred. And if yeah. you don't have a view of the sacred, if you don't have a view of the preciousness of the person, you can easily be sidelined into, as you as you put it, like you stereotype them out of out of being a human. You can you can you can assume certain things. Your own insecurities can project certain things onto them, and so yeah. on. Yeah, no. I, Isn't I it really about being Christian in that sense? No, I don't think so. I, I think you can have a sense of the sacredness and a sense of human dignity without being a believer. And what I say to secular friends, inside each person, there is some piece of them that has no size, shape, color, or weight, but gives them infinite value and dignity. And the word I assign to that piece is soul, their soul. Their soul longs. Their soul can be sick. If, if you're leading a life that's askew, if you're living a life of shame, you feel a sickness of soul. And so we can't see it, but the soul is a thing. You don't need to believe in God to believe that each person is a living soul. And if you treat them as a living soul, whether you're getting drunk with them at a bar or, or trying to pick them up at a ball game or, or at the cash register, you'll probably end up treating them correctly. And once you lose that concept of a soul, that each person is a soul of infinite value and dignity, that's when you begin down walking the path of dehumanization. Yes, well, let's 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 work. Let's let's. I mean, it's just my mind went to if you were to be at a peace conf, a peace rave on, in southern Israel, and you saw a Hamas operative coming down in a hang glider towards you, how are you capable of seeing yeah. that person? Right. And now that's an extreme position, but obviously, but I'm I'm just saying there are there are points at which someone's behavior. Someone's aspect will will completely make it extremely hard for you to see the good within them. Yeah. Well, the guys on the paragliders are the essence of demonization because they're killing, raping, murdering kids at a festival. And so that is what we want to avoid above all else. And so how do we regard the Hamas terrorists who did this? Well, I would say you're not going to help the situation by having a conversation with them and saying, well, let me really see you. <laughs> no, that, 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 some people just need to be beaten. In my view, Donald Trump just needs to be beaten. I'm not going to somehow make Donald Trump a civilized human being by having a good conversation with him. But outside of those people, I still, even in these circumstances, I didn't like it when the Israeli defense minister called Hamas animals. No, me neither. Yeah, and it's not fair to the animals in the first place. But you should never get over the fact that this is a human being. Uh, and that'll offer at least some restraint on your behavior. But then most people, and I don't like Trump, but I've had a zillion conversations with Trump supporters. And it's perpetually hard to hate people up close. And I think one of the reasons we have Donald Trump is because we've created a society in which 54% of Americans say that no one knows them well. The number of people who say they have no, cl no close personal friends has gone up by four times in the last 20 years. Depression rates, suicide rates. 36% of Americans have broken with a member of their immediate family. 50, the number of Americans who say they, who rate, give themselves the lowest happiness rating is 45%, up 50% in 20 years. So we, we're in the middle of some sort of social and relational crisis. And as Hannah Arendt said years and decades ago, loneliness always leads to authoritarianism. Lonely people seek out authoritarians to give themselves a status and meaning. And so the book will not, rescue Donald Trump from being the narcissist that he is. But I do think the skills that I try to describe, just how to forgive, how to offer forgiveness and how to ask for forgiveness, how to ask good questions, how to see somebody else's point of view, how to break up with someone without crushing their heart. 
These are basic social skills that I think will make our societies more decent and more humane and head off the kind of authoritarian monsterism that we've seen. That's why I found it interesting that as your, as your work has progressed over the years, you've always been fascinated by social types, by, by the way human beings interact with each other. But you also had a predominant interest in politics and ideas and arguments. But, but it seems to me, and this is just my own reading of what you've been writing, is that at some point, I think you may have realized that politics isn't going to solve this. <laughs> the politics that we have used and developed is not going to resolve these questions. We, we can't do it at that level. We have to re start again at the bottom level. We have, to, we have to open our minds and hearts from the ground up, and that starts with us. So it's a very kind of almost anti-political book in that sense. Yeah, well, I, th I think our society is over-politicized and under-moralized that we pay too much attention to every little political trick or disgrace and not enough to the basic questions of how do you be a good friend? How do you build a friendship? And we just don't teach the skills. You know, I, I read a statistic that came out long after the book was done, but the number of boys who've never been on a date, you know, teenagers who've just never been on a date and they wanted to know why. So they investigated. And the main reason or a main reason was poor flirting skills. <laughs> like flirting is a skill. And so, you know, to build a rebuild a good society you have to have an open heart but it's not enough you have to have social skills and, and so obviously social media and the internet has had a huge impact on people's the amount of time literally people spend yeah. physically humanly with other people which is how you learn these things yeah disastrously negative effect and i imagine i'm more pro ai than most people are but i imagine ai is going to be another threat and so i've also you know as i've gone through middle age you know, we writers are trying to work out our shit in public. And so the stuff I've been trying to work on is be a more, a more moral human being, uh, a more vulnerable human being. And hopefully in this book, uh, a human being who's better able to understand the people around them and make them feel understood. Let me present you with a, 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 a hypothesis, which is that I am going to meet with someone who has who is on the, the very hard woke left and has said unspeakably horrible things about me online. And we've had this, let's, I mean, it's an invent, I'm inventing this person. And I meet them. And usually I run away. I don't, I, in social situations, I do not want it. I don't want to have that com confrontation particularly. So I, I, but sometimes you do. So where do, how, do, how does, you're, you're suddenly in that spot. You're with someone who deeply disagrees with what you, what you, publicly said or privately said they seem to resent you personally for those things they've attached a sort of moral quality to your particular political position how how would one start a conversation with someone like that what are the questions that one might ask each other to unwind and unravel where we're at yeah so the first thing i would say is these are hard conversations that happen across ideological difference, sometimes racial differences, sometimes class differences. These are hard conversations. And so people come at you, and if they come at you and me, they may think we're prominent or they may think we're part of the establishment, they're part of some idea, set of ideas they think is holding them down. And so I find my first instinct, especially when there's a lot of criticism and blame in the room, is to get defensive and say, well, you've got me all wrong, or I'm not part of the problem, or you don't know what issues I'm dealing with. And I've learned that's best to be resisted. That the first, your first job, at least my first job in those circumstances, is to stand in somebody else's standpoint. That is to say that to ask them three times in different ways, 
tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? What am I missing here? And there's a book I read, a really fine book called Crucial Conversations about how to have these hard conversations. And they point out that in any conversation, respect is like air. When it's in the room, nobody notices. But when it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. And if, I, if you come at me from a woke perspective who finds me the personification of evil, and I ask you three or four different ways to go deeper and deeper and deeper about not only what you believe, but how, what experience led you to believe this? Like, what happened to you? Then I've shown you respect. And so our job, the Scots, or at least I was told, the Scots have word ken, the, which is like the, for, na for navigating the area of the ocean that I can see. So we know the phrase, beyond, that's beyond my ken. So we want to be in their ken, get inside their ken. And then you have a conversation, and often we'll, we'll start disagreeing. And then once we start disagreeing and we go back to our, our talking points, then very soon our motivations will deteriorate. So it used to be we were speaking to understand. Now we're just speaking to pummel and to show we're smarter. And everything said after emotions begin to, after the motivations begin to deteriorate, everything said after that is injurious and bad for your relationship. So if you're in a fight with a spouse or a close friend and you're, you find yourself, your motivations deteriorating, stop, go to bed, talk to them tomorrow. And then, the, the, then you can sort of pull us out of that spiral by saying, by clarifying your motivations. So that what they call splitting. You say, no, I wasn't trying to silence your voice. I was just trying to understand how somebody from your background could believe this. So you say, here's the motivation I'm not doing, and here's the motivation I was trying to do. And then you can say, listen, we, we've had this emotionally upsetting conversation, and we've said some things about each other, but at least we're open. At least we're, we're at a vulnerable spot with each other, and maybe we can go to another level. And then the final thing, again, I, I go back to the history. People... People have never been asked about their life stories, and they take enormous pleasure telling you about them. Uh, there's a guy who I spoke to for the book called Dan McAdams, who studies how people tell their life stories in Northwestern. He has people come in, and he asks them about their high points of their life, low points, turning points. And then after several hours, he gives them a, little, a small check to sort of compensate them for their time. And a lot of the people push back the check and say, I'm not taking money for this. This has been the best, one of the best afternoons I've had in my life for a long time because no one has ever asked me. And so if somebody comes into the room hating you and you're just curious about who their grandma was, I find it's the level of respect and the tenor of the conversation turns around, not always, but almost all the time. Yeah, that's – or maybe you can say even in our disagreement, we're both trying to get to the same place. We, we, you know, we, we, I know, you're, I know you're, you're sincere in what you're trying to do, and, and I am sincere, but obviously we disagree about the way to do it or you know, the, when you find some element of common ground. Yeah, and that, there, so I have a phrase. I didn't make it. I learned this from a mediator. Find the gem statement. If we're fighting about something, there's probably something deep down we agree upon. So my brother and I might be fighting our, about our dad's health care, but we agree we both want what's best for our dad. So if we can keep returning to that, what we agree upon, the GEM statement, then we'll save our relationship amid disagreement. Another fun way to turn disagreement into something profitable is to find the disagreement under the disagreement. So if you and I are arguing about tax policy, it's probably not tax policy we're really arguing. It's, it's probably I have a set of values around entrepreneurship or individual liberty, and you have a set of views around community, 
And so instead of just restating our talking points, let's go deep down and say, what's the disagreement under the disagreement here? Suddenly we're having fun. We're, we're exploring things together. And it's about doing something together. Yeah. That, that's, it's, it's not necessarily, it's, it's more like, it's not like facing one another. It is as if we're both facing in the same direction and, and swapping notes about why I see it this way and you see it that way. Yeah. I read a memoir. You probably know this writer way better than me. John Buchan. Was that, is that how he spells his name? A British writer, I think sort of maybe 100, 150 years ago. And so he mentions the best conversationalist he ever knew was a British statesman, Arthur Balfour. And apparently what Balfour would do would take a, a calf statement from a shy person and see in it these amazing possibilities for insight. And he would develop the, per, the, the insight and say, oh, your, your point is so fantastic. It gets me thinking about this. And then it gets me thinking about this. And so within 10 minutes, the person who, the shy person who'd made the comment thinks he's like just made the greatest contribution to human knowledge in the history. And Buchan says people would have lunch with Balfour and they would just leave walking on air. And so a great conversation is not like lecturing at you. It's, it's encouraging a joint exploration of something. Which means getting out of your own ego to a great extent. And I, 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 I you know, I, here's the thing that I find very hard to avoid, which is that someone tells me some shitty thing has happened to them. So someone went into hospital with kidney stones and I immediately say, oh, God, yes. Well, I, I, I nearly died of AIDS. <laughs> I didn't, that's not true. That's, I'm just using those two. And or my, my mother is the absolute classic in this, in this, in this version. My, my, my sister, her first pregnancy, she had an incredibly difficult labor. She was 24 hours and then she had an emergency C-section. It was a huge drama. My mother shows up the next morning and she just looks at my sister and says, you have no idea what you just put me through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, my, my mom just literally could not. She literally could not get out of her ego at all at any moment. It was all about her feelings. I mean, she said to me once, oh, I don't think you're going to get AIDS because if you got AIDS, I'd die. And she had to give me the other way around, mom. But there's a kind of narcissism and egotism that the, even if you're even if you're trying to sympathize with someone, can actually subtly put them down, can diminish them, can can suddenly tell them, oh well, your experience isn't that valid. I once had a worse one. You think you're sympathizing? In fact, you're you're topping them. Right. That's called being a topper. It's the illusion of trying to relate, but the reality of saying, let's talk about me some more. And with hardcore narcissism, I don't. And there's no cure for that, as far as I know. If, if some you, people, well, you and I, we lived in Washington. It, 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 <laughs> almost, I mean, one out of two conversations, the other person is simply waiting rather than listening, yeah. waiting yeah. to say their thing. And, and the other thing I would say is too, if you were in a round conversation with a bunch of people, like a panel or a dinner party, and you just say, if, if your point comes, well, I think Joanna had a really good point there. And I, I, I see where you're coming from, Andrew, or well, it makes suddenly the people that are being referred to get this huge, like, puffy feeling. Or similarly, just the old days when I would just link to people and say, I think this is worth, this person's worth, it doesn't hurt me in the slightest to say that. And they do have a point of view, but it's amazing the psychological impact that can have on someone. No. 
Yeah, we all see ourselves the way others see us. So you get some positive re reinforcement. It feels great. I remember being linked to on the Daily Dish and getting this same jol jolts of pleasure, <laughs> unless you were really criticizing me. I was well, speaking we you always like a, We always <laughs> like a little praise. You know, everyone's, but that, I mean, you can manipulate people that way as, as well, yeah. of course. I mean, I, there, there are ways in which someone who appears to be illuminator is actually kind of exposing you in some ways. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm some, first reminded of a modern Taylor Swift lyric that you have our narcissism disguised as, disguised as altruism like some kind of congressman which I think is an excellent lyric from Taylor Swift. I was reminded, as you were speaking, I had somebody from the White House, this was in the Obama years, call me to brief me on some su subject. And we were having a conversation by the phone, over the phone, and my cell phone, it dropped, the call dropped. And so I think, oh, he'll notice that my phone has dropped. He'll call me back in three minutes. Doesn't call me back. I wait five <laughs> minutes. I wait seven <laughs> minutes. So I call his office and his assistant says, oh, he can't talk. He's on the phone. I'm like, no, he's on the phone with me. He's been blabbing for 10 minutes. He does not realize there's not another human being. And so my rule, and this happens to me with some frequency, if you invite me to coffee or a meal and you lecture at me for 40 minutes or an hour and a half, we will not be enjoying each other's company ever again. Because Somehow it triggers me to be talked at as if I'm not a human being, but just an audience. Well, you must have been triggered a hell of a lot in the town that we both have called home. I want to talk a little bit about suffering and how one can be with people who are suffering. I think about this partly because, as I was saying, you can top them with my suffering is worse, even if you're trying to. But there's a, and I think a lot of people, like someone has just died or a, a relative, your mother has just died or, you, or in my case, like recently, and my dog just died. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, and, and you come across someone and they know that but they don't want they some of them don't want to bring it up some of them some of them sort of some of them then want to overdo it what is the best way to sort of encounter someone who clearly is in a terrible state yeah well first i i know a woman named mary who's who hi there oldest daughter this is not the end of this podcast in fact we're only just getting going if you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>